Once again, good morning. We're very glad you're here. As uh, as anticipated with most home games, we have uh, quite a few that are visiting with us this morning. We're really glad you're here. Thank you for coming and uh, uh, being a part of us this morning, and it means an awful lot to us. Hope you got an outline as you came in this morning. uh, We go through our PowerPoint. uh, uh, I'll try to cue you in. Uh, You'll see some words underlined that kind of cues you in as well. There is a lot of wisdom to be gained uh, in this life, and I have here my own uh, collection of of wisdom. And uh, here's just a sampling. One, don't sweat the petty things, and don't pet the sweaty things. (laughs) I doubt, therefore I might be. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you. (laughs) We hear a lot about this. Men are from Earth. Women are from Earth. Deal with it. Before a man uh, invented the drawing board, what did they go back to? If you tried to fail and succeed, which one have you done? Think about it. If it weren't for electricity, we'd be watching our TiVos on our flat screens by candlelight. (laughs) Misery doesn't love company. Misery doesn't love anything. It's true that you cannot take it with you, but you ought to remember that how you got it determines where you go. And one that resonates with James, the tongue weighs almost nothing, but so few people can hold it. Well, obviously, not all points of wisdom carry the same value. And I can, I'll let you determine which one of those have any significance to you. And you also might be convinced, as I am, that common sense is not all that common. And so I believe that asking the question, who is really wise, is a good question. As you know, uh, there's a section in the Old Testament that is known as wisdom literature. If you don't know that, that's Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. But I also believe that there's a book of wisdom in the New Testament. It is the book that I'm now preaching through. I think it's the book of James. And nowhere does James focus more on the issue of wisdom than in our text today. We pick up now in James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by the deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but notice it's earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Now, we're all, of course, uh, to some degree, uh, familiar with the story of Solomon, how God actually offered him anything he desired. And Solomon thought about that. He says, I'm young and I'm having to lead a lot of people, so what I really need is a discerning heart. And we're told how much that pleased God. God just gave him everything then. 
And ever since, God's people have been challenged to be like Solomon. You see on the top of your outlines, wisdom must be pursued intentionally by every believer. Now, this isn't something that we're born with. It may be true that some believers might be naturally more intelligent than other believers, but all believers can intend to become spiritually discerning. It's kind of like the legend, and I assume it's a legend, uh, regarding Socrates. You may have even heard this one before. He had a man approach him who, who, uh, who was a bit arrogant, and he uh, came up and says, Oh, great Socrates, teach me your wisdom. So he said, Okay, and they marched down to the sea, and they waded into the water. And so Socrates asked him again, What is it that you want? And the guy repeated, I, I want your wisdom, O oh, great one. And at that, Socrates grabbed him by the shoulders, pushed him under the water, held him down there for a little while, pulled him back up, and asked him again, what is it that you want? He says, wisdom, O great one. So he again grabbed him by the shoulders, put him under the water, held him under even longer. This time, he pulls him back up and says, what is it that you want? He says, I want wisdom, O great one. So he grabs him again, pushes him under the water, and holds him down even longer. At that, he comes up gasping, and he says, what is it that you want? And the guy says, I want air. And of course, as the story goes, Socrates says, well, when you want wisdom as much as you want air, then you'll get it. God's wisdom is something that is offered to all believers, but you've, you've got to want it to get it. And that's because, at least I think in major part, because our instincts were twisted since the garden. You see, the world's wisdom was downloaded into our moral genetic makeup, you know, the atom in us, when Satan convinced Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And you'll remember that we're told there, remember, the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and notice it was desirable for gaining wisdom. What was the temptation of the garden that has caused all of this hell on earth that we've faced ever since? It's essentially this. You don't need God to figure out life. You can do this thing all on your own. And so there in your outlines, ever since the garden, there have been two sources of wisdom, the world and God. If you read through Paul's writings, he makes them kind of mutually exclusive, doesn't he? For example, here's what he says to the church in Rome. In Romans 1, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him or even give thanks to him. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became darkened and confused. Now notice, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Now, here's the thing about the two types of wisdom. Both sides think that the way the other side looks at things is unwise. And again, our struggle is that we, left to ourselves, are instinctively tend to be drawn to the wrong source. And so just being around God, by the way, doesn't insulate us from this. Whether it's Abraham who took a shortcut by having a child by Hagar 
because it just didn't seem reasonable at the time, did it, to have a child by Sarah? Or Lot, who uh, chose what looked like a great real estate investment there by Sodom, but ended up losing his family as a result of it. Or James and John, who sought to improve their financial portfolio by requesting the seats of power in the new political regime that Jesus was going to establish. Or Peter, who was trying to argue Jesus out of going to the cross just to make life a little more convenient. And wasn't that reasonable? Or how all the disciples continually trivialized the kingdom of God with all their petty concerns. In all of this, the choices these people made, if you pay attention, they seemed very reasonable at the moment. But their views of life were so narrow that they were easily misled. And so we learn that pursuing wisdom can be very evasive. Remember what James told us already back in chapter 1? Anyone want wisdom? Then ask God. Now, let me make two distinctions about God's wisdom. The first, more on the obvious level. Maybe somewhat effortless. You may have already filled this in without even hearing the statement. True wisdom is not simply the accumulation of knowledge. You might know someone, don't you, that who, who can rehearse, you know, uh, and regurgitate impressive amounts of knowledge, even from the Bible, but nonetheless, you wouldn't go to them for advice, would you? You see, knowledge is the accumulation of information, while wisdom is the ability to actually walk what you talk, to be able to navigate life more specifically in James's mind with love. This is probably another thing that's a bit legendary, I don't know, but when Henry Ford first built his uh, first plant to mass-produce cars, uh, uh, as I understand, he asked electrical genius uh, Charles Steinmetz to build generators for his factory, and he did. And one day, one of the, some of those uh, generators ground to a halt, and none of the repairmen there at that factory could fix it, so they had to call in uh, uh, Steinmetz once again to, to, to work on it. And it says that he showed up and he tinkered on it for just an hour or so. And then he flipped a switch and the generator came back to life. Later on, Ford got a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. And he was a bit flabbergasted by this and inquired as to why it was so much since he spent so little time there. And Steinmetz's reply was very simple. For tinkering with the generator, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Ford paid the bill. My point, wisdom is the ability to use what we know for good. Now, that's on the surface. Let's look a little bit deeper with James. A person, it says, shows his life by his good Life, really better translated, his pathway of living, uh, his way of going about consistency in his life and the direction, the trajectory of his life, okay? In other words, it's the way you live, according to James, not the way you argue that counts. And he defines it, he says, by deeds done, notice, in humility. And so the impression I get from the context of James 
is that there were those in the church who were standing up saying, let me tell you what my opinion is on this issue. And they were able to give arguments that were legitimizing, perhaps even impressive. But when you looked carefully at their lives and the effect they were having on other people, it revealed somewhat of a corrosive effect that was opposed to the law of love. And so James talks about the effect that all of this was having in this church that he's writing to, and he makes very specific references to things like quarreling and anger and and prejudice and slander, and everything seemed to be falling apart, and everyone was kind of at each other's throats. They were walking on eggshells everywhere. Second, true wisdom is not baptized self-ambition. The church that James was writing to was a church that was under obvious pressure. And being under pressure, they were vulnerable to fragmenting. And apparently some of these somewhat self-appointed teachers emerged in this vulnerable situation, each playing out their own agenda through, through political lobbying. And our text here uses the word translated envy. Which, by the way, finds its origins in the root word for zeal. You know, fervor. And what is pictured here, you see, is this. is someone with exaggerated, uh, misplaced, misguided sense of devotion and commitment. In other words, Paul, uh, uh, Paul uses to, uh, this to, uh, to describe himself, as a matter of fact. He talks about... Uh, having a past, he says, marked by a zeal for God. But it also led him to persecute the church. You get the idea. So you see, oftentimes, because we feel so strongly about something, we just assume that God must feel that strongly about it, too. And in our attempts to persuade others to see our point of view, we place ourselves at risk of kind of losing our sense of reason with these things. And we end up becoming obsessive, almost fanatical with it. And that, you see, makes us very susceptible to being bitter. So, in the midst of this church that was under stress, James attempts to kind of refocus everybody's hearts by revealing true, heavenly wisdom. And here he gives seven characteristics, and they're strung together like pearls on a string. And so I want you to pick up with me in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and it's got the idea of being free from prejudice, and sincere. You know, it's not a patchwork of inconsistencies in their life. Now, what's potentially tedious about this text is our having to understand and harmonize all these separate characteristics. The great part of this thing is the synergetic effect of actually getting it. Now, you see, for James, wisdom is a lot like faith. He makes almost the same argument. Remember, you don't have faith just because you say you believe. You know you have faith when you love people the way God said And you don't have wisdom just because you make good arguments. 
You have wisdom if it produces the heart of God in your lifestyle. So let me attempt to kind of paint a picture of God's wisdom by giving three revealing actions, because it is an action, not just a possessed sense of knowledge, that belongs to God. First of all, heaven's wisdom practices humility. Again, James's church was being troubled by uh, litigious, you know, litigating uh, uh, and contentious individuals. And thus, James keeps asking throughout this book for them to stop what? Don't, you know, be slow to anger and slow to speak and stop arguing with one another over petty, trivial things. I think it's an insightful question to ask, and that is, how can we be, as Paul calls us to be, to be growing, it says, in the grace and the knowledge of God if we're not also willing to change our minds? Now, here James uses the word considerate and mercy. That is, it goes beyond the strict requirements of law. It makes allowances for others. Its predisposition is not to charge in like a Sherman tank and let's fix things. He also uses the word submissive. That is, the willingness to reevaluate and learn, to be reasonable, flexible. You see, on their outlines, a trajectory of God's wisdom is not inclined toward dogmatism. That is, being out of balance in perspectives on religious issues in such a way that it lends us to act as though our very life hangs on this issue all the time. Which, of course, causes us to become hypercritical and to assert our opinions in ways that are kind of out of whack with true reason. In our college class on Sunday mornings, we're studying through Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. And last week, it fell my lot to talk about submission. And I ran across this quote of Richard Foster's, and it reads this way. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to have our own way. Frankly, most things in life are not nearly so important as we think they are. Our lives will not come to an end if this or that does not happen. If you will watch these things, you will see, for example, that almost all church fights and splits occur because people do not have the freedom to give in to each other. We insist that this is a critical issue at stake. We are fighting for sacred principle. Perhaps that's true. Usually, it is not. Second of all, Heaven's wisdom promotes what matters. Worldly wisdom, you see, gets hung up on inferior matters that ultimately prove themselves meaningless because they are temporary. Earlier, James says, notice that this kind of wisdom was earthly and, he says, unspiritual. He's not necessarily saying that the world's wisdom is always obviously satanic but rather that its aims and its goals are so horizontal that it makes them ultimately insignificant. 
And in fact, when James tells us that the world's wisdom, he says, leads to every, it says, evil practice, that word for evil does not point to something that is blatantly wicked. That's not what that word means. What is, he's actually saying here is that although worldly wisdom may not produce what is necessarily bad, it nonetheless tends to produce what is good for nothing. You get the idea? The wisdom of the world doesn't produce anything that really matters when you ask yourself what matters most. In other words, on your outline, God's wisdom does not become preoccupied with petty things. It's kind of like the story of the man who was hosting a a, a scholar from China. And he met his oriental friend at a train station. And he rushed him to the subway. And as they were running through the subway station, the host panted, if we run and catch the next train, we can save three minutes. To which the Chinese philosopher replied, and what significant thing shall we do with the three minutes that we save? You've heard of William Booth. He founded the Salvation Army in England in 1865. When he did this, he was bitterly attacked by the British press. And one day, his oldest son, Bramwell, uh, showed his father a newspaper article attacking him. And um, this was William's response to his son. He said, 50 years from now, it will matter very little how people treated us. But it will matter a great deal whether or not we did the work of God. Third, heaven's wisdom produces peace. Do you notice how all of these little strings, these pearls on the string, every one of them relate to relationships? Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial. Wisdom, you see, and this is very important, never sees life as a choice between truth and love. Because what truth does is to teach us to love each other. That's how we know we possess it. Like Peter tells us in 1 Peter. I could go many places with this, but let's try this. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, notice, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. You see where truth leads? And so you see on your outlines, the wisdom from above will deepen your relationships, not fragment them. There's a large statue of Jesus in the Andes Mountains. It resides precisely on the border between Argentina, Chile, and Argentina. And it was placed there back in 1904, and it was there as a sign to stand as a a commitment between the people of Argentina and Chile that they would never go to war with each other as long as that statue's there. They would remain at peace. But ironically, shortly after it was placed there, a controversy arose because the statue faced Argentina. 
And the Chileans were upset that the back of Jesus was facing them. And they were about to go to war over the statue. Until a wise editor of a newspaper from Chile said this. Well, you have to remember that those Argentinians, they need more watching over than we do. <laughs> now notice in the context of peace how James ends this section. He said, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, first of all, I want you to understand that this word peace comes from the rich texture of the Hebrew word that we can say, shalom. And its emphasis is not the absence of tension. It is not peace at any price. It is not peace through appeasement. But rather, it is linked to the idea of being whole, complete, healthy. Get the idea? And so if we're pursuing peace, that's the direction that we go. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I know this. I don't care how good the seed is, it has to be in the right climate, in the right environment, or it won't grow. And so I think what James is saying, you want good things to flourish in your church? Then you have to possess a climate of that kind of peace. And so who is really the wise person? It's the person who is humble. It's the person whose devotions and its priorities are not misguided and out of whack. It is the person whose relationships are healthy. Well, let me end with this. And I will do what I think is the shortest sermon I've ever preached from this pulpit. Which, by the way, is wise. <laughs> the story is told about a man who went to speak to the Lord about heaven and hell. And the Lord said to the man, come with me and I will show you hell. And there they entered a room where there was a group of people sitting around a large pot of stew. And yet everyone was famished and desperate and starving, they were emaciated. And each person held a spoon that reached to the pot. But each spoon had such a long handle that it could not be used to bring the stew to their own mouth. And the suffering was terrible. After a while, the Lord said, come now and I will show you heaven. And interestingly enough, they entered into a room that looked identical to the room in hell. There was a pot of stew. There was the group of people, the same long-handled spoons. And the man said, you know, but they look so happy and well-nourished. I don't understand this. I mean, it's the same exact thing of what we just left, 
Why is it so good here and not so good there? And if you're wise, you know the answer to this one. The Lord says, ah, that's simple. Because here, they've learned to feed each other. If we can help you in any way this morning, we want you to feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.